Tyler Stanton, uh, pastor of church in New York City. And uh, he recently wrote a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And in uh, the book, he shares a story uh, of a gal named Jenna, who was a part of his church, and uh, Jenna's sister-in-law, Helen. Uh, Jenna and her husband had moved to New York City because they were super passionate about ministry, especially uh, to the underprivileged. Uh, They themselves were quite poor, uh, especially according to New York City standards, and often found themselves in places where they had need as well. Because of their great faith, they would constantly pray and God would constantly meet their needs and in some just fun, kind of cool ways. They they often... uh, struggling even just to buy groceries, pay rent, so they would pray. Jenna would pray and uh, God would provide. Either uh, friends from church would bring them by some uh, groceries that they had just purchased for them or God would provide by uh, getting them connected with a food bank that had the things that they needed. Uh, One time they were short on their rent, they just didn't have the money. Jobs for her husband and herself just weren't making all of the ends meet, and so they prayed. That's what Jenna did. And later that evening, someone slipped anonymously a check under their door that covered exactly what they needed for that month's rent. Uh, Because they were fairly poor, they often had to eat leftovers. They didn't waste any of their food, and that meant they needed to reheat food, which is really tough to do if you don't have a microwave. And so... Jenna started praying, God, like, Ben, it would be awesome if we had a microwave. Two days later, she's doing ministry in the parking lot of this laundromat with a number of women that she had befriended uh, that were struggling in life themselves, either addicts or in prostitution, and she was there to love on them and give them hope and offer another way and try to meet some of their needs, and about 10 o'clock in the evening, she's hanging out with some of these women that have become her friends, ministering to them, and a car pulls up, a guy she's never seen, a car she's never seen, into the parking lot, guy gets out of his car, pops his trunk, and looks at these ladies and says, "Uh, I have an extra microwave, Uh, does anybody want it? (laughs) That's how Jenna and her husband got their microwave. Jenna had prayed about so many different things that she saw God give a, not just answer, but often a quick and specific answer. But there was something else that she had been praying for days and months, even years, that God was not answering. She says this, Jenna said, God, I asked you for a microwave once, and you gave it to me. I've asked you for a baby every day for years, and all I get is silence. Why are you so in touch with the trivial needs of my life and so distant from my deepest desire. Uh, Around this time, Jenna's sister-in-law, Helen, who was in her mid-ish 20s, called Jenna and told her that the doctors had just found something. Uh, She was quickly diagnosed with cervical cancer and was told that there was good news and bad news, that that the good news was they were pretty confident that the cancer was treatable, but the bad news was that she would probably never be able to have children. Well, because of Jenna's journey on infertility, 
And now Helen's news that infertility was going to be her future, the two, not only because they were sister-in-laws, but now with their shared grief, became incredibly close at the heart level as they walked this journey, not just of infertility together, but the cancer that Helen was dealing with. The, the doctors were able to get the cancer. And Jenna continued to pray, though, not just for the cancer to be gone, but for a miracle. That her sister-in-law, as she continued to pray for her own infertility, that her sister-in-law might be able to have a baby. Uh, a few months after the cancer had been taken care of, her sister Helen called her and said, Jenna, you will never believe this, but I'm pregnant. And they rejoiced together. And a couple of months after that, and a few rounds of IVF treatment, Jenna and her husband found that they too were pregnant. What had been a terrible, painful journey was now found with rejoicing. Nine months after Jenna got that phone call from Helen, her sister-in-law telling her that she was pregnant, Helen gave birth to a healthy little baby boy. His name was Henry. Henry needed to be born via cesarean section, and uh, that's just a fairly long process of healing, a very significant surgery, of course. And a couple weeks had gone by, she went back in, the doctors looked at the wound, and everything seemed to be healing appropriately, but Helen was still experiencing pain. Uh, another couple weeks, everything, again, seemed to look good in the healing but Helen was still experiencing some discomfort, but that's pretty normal for a cesarean section. A couple months later, it was still there, and they went back in for another check, and this time they decided to check a little bit deeper, and uh, Jenna tells the story this way. She went in for an examination. A massive, inoperable tumor was discovered in her abdomen. The cancer had come back aggressively. It had been growing inside her long enough that it was attached to several vital organs. The doctors wouldn't be able to touch it. The tumor was hiding behind Henry. Life and death were growing in Helen's abdomen simultaneously. Before Henry turned one, Jenna's sister-in-law, Helen, died. And when Jenna was there in Helen's final days, begging God, to change this circumstance, to heal her sister-in-law. She found that God seemed silent. After Helen's funeral, she came back home and remembers going into her house and feeling as though her own faith was now barely hanging on by a thread. Her own faith was on life support. Where was God? What was he doing? Why did he allow this? The, the questions that Jenna had, theologians uh, call them uh, a theodicy. This is the question. Is God completely good, but not completely powerful? 
or is he completely powerful and not completely good? Well, that's the question that Jenna was wrestling with. What's up? Where are you? If you're all powerful, why don't you do something about this? This is not right. This is an injustice. Or are you actually really good, but you're not actually all powerful? You can't actually do everything, God. Is God all powerful, but not all loving, or all loving, but not all powerful? That is what theologians call a theodicy. And I don't care what kind of religious system, what kind of philosophy, what kind of worldview you have, there is no way for anyone to sidestep that question. The Bible doesn't actually sidestep the question. Uh, Psalm chapter 13, verse one, David says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. And at the end of that psalm, he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. David ends with some hope at the very end. But there's another psalm, Psalm 88. That the entire psalm is one of lament and it ends with no hope at all. In fact, in the psalm, it says, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Jesus himself actually had a similar question. Mark chapter 14, you can flip over there. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows that the cross is coming near and all that's going to lead up to the cross, the pain and torture, humiliation, rejection, suffering that he's going to experience and he's pouring out his heart to his father. And it says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And look what he says, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. God, I know you can do anything. I know that you're all powerful. So can you take this from me? Could there be another way? Dane Ortland says this in his book Deeper. He says, there is, for all of us living between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two, that is, before sin entered the world, And before sin is eradicated from the world, that is you and I living right now in this moment, a pervasive futility shot through everything. Our minds, our hearts, our consciences, every thought and word and meeting and email and rising to another day. There's something hard to articulate that infects it all. When pain washes into our lives, we immediately instinctively feel as if we are losing. Something is happening in the debit category. It feels like we are going 
backwards. So I'd like to pose a dangerous question this morning. I know that in the midst of pain and suffering, it feels like we are going backwards. But are we? Now, before we can dive into the rest of this message, I need to address a couple of different audiences that I think are probably sitting here this morning. There are, there are probably some of you right now that you are walking through something. And the pain that you are experiencing, the suffering that you are experiencing, feels so raw and so close to the surface that you can barely sit here this morning singing songs of praise or hearing a sermon preached almost is too much to bear. I want you to know that I did not write this sermon for you in the way that you probably think. I know that in this moment, you don't need someone sitting across from you telling you good theology. I'm not saying that that's never valuable or important. What I'm saying is that right now, I know you don't need someone sitting across from you. You need someone sitting next to you. You need someone sitting next to you to cry with you and rage with you and weep with you and feel the disappointment and heaviness of the pain that you're carrying and help you hold it. And so for the next 20 minutes, I am simply going to allow you to check out. You can take from this message whatever it is that you would like to and leave whatever you feel like you need to and I would much rather you simply in this moment imagine the Jesus who went to the cross and endured the suffering for all of us sitting right next to you right now and he is weeping with you and raging with you and hurting with you and holding and you can sit in that space because that's what you need much more than someone telling you about good theology there are others of you in this room right now that quite honestly, you just haven't experienced a whole lot of pain in your life. Life's been pretty good. Not that you've never had any disappointments. Of course, every one of us has had some, but some of you just haven't experienced that much pain yet. I wanna say this, and I'm not trying to be mean with it. I just think it's important that you know, it is coming. Every single one of us who lives the human experience will endure pain and suffering that is so significant that it will absolutely knock you flat on your back and disorient your faith. And so I simply want you to understand that it will come so that when it does, it does not completely take you by surprise. And I also want you to hear this. You cannot go deep in your walk with Jesus without going through deep waters in life. It is where God does his best work in us. I'm not telling you it's fun or that I wish it on anyone. I do not. But scripture is clear. Every single one of us will experience pain and suffering just as Jesus did. Now for the rest of us, you probably, like me, have been a student in the school of suffering for quite a while. The rest of this sermon 
is to teach us how to graduate. Each class that we take, there is no grade. There are not some of you that are walking it in flying colors with an A and others of you that are barely squeaking by with a D. There is only pass and fail in the school of suffering. And it all boils down to a choice that we're given the opportunity to make. Each class, if we allow it, will grow us more and more into the image of Christ. Now, Jesus invites us into the school uh, with a couple of teachings that he does. There's actually a number of teachings, but uh, two in particular that I want us to look at this morning. The first is actually in Matthew chapter 7. It's a very familiar passage. As soon as you see it up on the screen, you'll be like, oh yeah, heard this one before. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Uh, We'll read it together. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. On the surface, this feels incredibly straightforward, right? Like awesome. Like I just ask and I seek and I not. The problem is that we all know that uh, the answers to our questions, the gifts that we seek, are not nearly as straightforward, right? Doesn't always produce the straightforward results that we hope for. I wish it did. (laughs) Be awesome, right? Like three Hail Marys and an Our Father and like, boom, I got what I want, right? Or like I tried when I was like, in sixth grade, if I pray every day during the month of December, my parents will get me a puppy for Christmas. Didn't work. It didn't work because uh, God's not like an operating system on a computer that you just put in the right code and it spits out the thing that you want. He's not a vending machine. Now, I'll be honest, there's an awful lot of times when I, I probably wish he were that. Oh, I'll just put in my put in my dollar's worth of prayer and God will spit out the snicker bar that I wanted. But I promise you, you don't want to love and serve a vending machine. You want to love and serve a person who is real and has walked in the same shoes on the same earth that you have walked in. And that is what we get in Jesus. He's much bigger and better than any vending machine could ever be. So what is going on here? Uh, There's three words that we find, and and I'd like to just explore those words real briefly. Ask, seek, and knock, okay? Ask. We're invited to bring our pain and questions and frustrations and disappointments to God. This is an invitation. Jesus says, ask. It's an invitation to bring to him whatever it is that we're wrestling with, struggling with. Almost every single prayer request we have comes from a place of brokenness that happens in unexpected ways at unexpected times, right? A job loss that we don't see coming, a diagnosis that that we didn't realize was going to be a part of our future, a holiday that's no longer the same because that person that we loved and cherished and looked forward to spending time with is no longer there. When we find ourselves in a story we don't recognize, 
with no way back to the plot we thought we were living, we pray. We ask. I love that idea from Tyler Staten. When we find ourselves living in the plot of a story that we never saw coming, and there's no way to get back to what it was before, it's in those moments we find ourselves asking. And that is a beautiful invitation that Jesus gives to us, the invitation to bring all of our questions and our disappointments and our pain to him. The next thing Jesus says is we ask and then we seek. This word is actually found all over scripture, usually connected to seeking God. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We often seek answers or gifts. And what God often wants to give us is not the answer or gift that we thought we were seeking, but instead the answerer or the giver. The last thing is seek, or excuse me, knock. Uh, the door will be opened. We are invited to a table to acceptance and care. Now this is something that uh, we don't really get in our culture. Um, the idea of table fellowship was a really, really important thing in uh, the ancient Near East. To be invited to come into someone's house and eat at their table was a sign that you accepted them, that you cared for them, that you would protect them and provide for them. It was a powerful statement of who was in and who was out. You didn't just invite anybody to come to the table. That showed that they were a part of your family, a part of your community. That was a really, really big deal. So when Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened, everybody at that time understood exactly what he meant. Not just like, oh, you opened up to a new car. It was, no, I'm opening it up to inviting you into my house to eat at my table, to share table with you. It meant that we were now connected in deep, intimate relationship. Tyler Staten sums all these up with this quote. He says, we come for gifts and we get the giver. And we find ourselves seated at his table, welcomed, accepted, and loved, being fed, being listened to, relaxing in the warm presence of the loving God. Now, all that sounds great. But you're like, all right, T, but how does that help me understand how to graduate from the school of suffering? Like, I get ask and seek and, and knock. Like, that's good stuff and, and valuable. But there's another parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18 that I think will help shed a little bit more light on what we've just read with ask, seek, and knock. Luke chapter 18, if you flip over there, it's called the parable of the persistent widow. I, I like the word gritty. This chick had some grit. Look, and, and there's something that's probably uh, valuable for us to hear too. Um, the fact that she was a woman in the ancient Near East meant that her legal standing uh, was not like it is today. She, women were not even viewed as uh, being able to present testimony in a court of law. The fact that she was not only a woman but a widow meant that she had no security system behind her. She didn't have a husband to protect her or to keep others from taking advantage of her. And in the story, we're going to find that this widow was being taken advantage of. 
There was serious injustice and suffering that she was going through. Let's read what it says. Now Luke actually gives away the, the punchline before we actually allow Jesus to give the parable. It's pretty rare. Usually Jesus gives us a parable and then you get the punchline at the end. Luke gives it to us right off the bat. Look at what he says. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Homeboy is just sick of her. Seriously, lady, get out of my courtroom. He's like, I don't even care. I don't care about God. I don't care about people. Sure as heck don't care about you, but I'm just sick of listening to you. So whatever she's talking about, deal with it. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? He's like, look, if an unjust judge is willing to do this because this woman won't stop, how much more do you think your heavenly father, who is just and loving and cares, how much more do you think he will do to those who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then look how he ends the parable. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? Uh, what's the faith that he's talking about there? It's the faith to persevere. To keep asking. To not give up. When he says, will the son of man, when he returns, find faith on this earth? It's the faith of those who have persevered. Who have hung on even when it didn't make sense. It's the faith of the widow who keeps coming back day after day to a judge who is unjust and doesn't care, but she won't stop. The reason that this sheds light on what's happening in Matthew chapter 7 is because of the verb tense, ask, seek, and knock, that's in the original language. The problem is we don't have that verb tense in the English language. Uh, the verb tense is the present imperative. I know all about the present imperative. I actually had a minor in English when I was in college. I'm kidding. I mean, no, I'm not kidding. I do have a minor in English, but I don't know how or why. I'm terrible at English. I don't understand verb tenses. I barely know what a noun is. I think adverbs have an L-Y, right? So, but this is why this matters. The present imperative, which means that these are ongoing actions, not one-time actions. A better way to have written Matthew 7 would be to say that we are to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, even if the answers take longer than you think you can bear. Friends, this is how we pass a class in the school of suffering. This is how we graduate. We graduate by simply holding on even when it doesn't make sense. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not the most satisfactory answer that I would love to hear. I'd much rather find something in scripture that's like, 
oh yeah, well just, you know, pray this one and then pray that one and then pray this one. And if you do it in that order, then the, this thing's gonna happen and all your frustrations and disappointments and, and suffering and pain is gonna go away. But that's just not what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches is those who hang on are the ones that are going to experience the saving of God. In fact, that's what Jesus says. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Now, Jenna wound up coming to the same question and choice that each and every single one of us have. She was working with a counselor to process her pain and her grief, and her counselor asked her this question, and it really stopped Jenna dead in her tracks. Jenna says it this way, she relates the story. She says, my counselor looked at me and said these words, what reason could God give you? What I mean is, what could God say to you, Jenna, that would justify Helen's death? Is there any reason he could offer for not healing her that you would find satisfactory? Any answer that would make her loss okay? Jenna says, and the truth is there was nothing. And that realization left me with a choice to make. I could embrace mystery or run from it. Could I make peace with not knowing why my prayers weren't answered? Or would this be the experience I define God by? the one experience that overwhelms all the others I'd had along the way. Could I continue to trust God without answers and reasons? And she says this, the challenging invitation is to trust even in the darkness. In that grief counselor's office that day, I made my decision. I chose trust. Not a trust that God willed Helen's cancer or death, but a trust that God is good, that God is present in our suffering, and that God will make all things new. Friends, every single one of us is going to experience suffering and pain just the same as Jesus did. The pain of betrayal, unfair treatment, times when God seems to go silent, times when it feels like we are being forsaken, real suffering, every single one of us will experience this. The reason that I choose to continue to trust God is because I believe in and serve a God who doesn't just talk about it from afar, but has lived it before I even did, who walked on this earth and experienced all the pain and suffering that I do and still chose to go to the cross to die in my place. I don't have all the answers and I'm promising you this, for the last 20 years, there's been some things that I have wrestled with and asked God for. Prayers that I have prayed that he has left unanswered and I don't understand why. I've wept. And I don't mean for a couple minutes, I mean for hours, begging God to do something that only he could do that I never could do. And all I heard was silence. But all I experienced was his presence next to me. And I don't know where you're at, what you have or haven't yet experienced, but I know every single one of us in this room will one day. The way we graduate and grow better, not bitter, is by saying yes to trust, even in the darkness. God promises he will not waste your tears or your prayers. In fact, uh, Psalm 56.8 says that God is gathering our tears in a jar. 
and that he's going to use those tears to redeem us. In Revelation chapter eight, he actually says that he is collecting all of our prayers into a bowl. It is a bowl of incense that rises up. And one day, when Jesus is returning, he's going to take those prayers, that incense, he's going to light it on fire as, a, as an offering, and he's going to pour it back out on the earth to purify it, that all sin will be taken care of. God is not wasting your tears or your prayers. Do not give up. Do not give up. Hold fast and do not give up. Father God, we want to be a people who in spite of the pain and the suffering that we experience on this earth, hold on to you, Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense. Help us to do that, Father. It is not easy. But God, we know that there are beautiful, powerful, amazing things that you do in us and through us when we hold on to you in the midst of suffering. It is your greatest school for making us deep in Christ And Jesus, as much pain as that is, we say yes, we desire you and all that that means. Pray all these things in your beautiful and powerful name, Jesus. Amen.